0: Please be seated. Please open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read the entire chapter. As we see God's law given to His people through Moses, we see the response. I'm going to stop and consider who God is with not only what He says in light of His law, but what He says about Himself prior, just prior to giving it, and then what our response should be in light of it. So Exodus, chapter 20. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, Thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, thou shalt, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build of it hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast... Neither shalt thou go up thy steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. May the Lord continue to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's pray briefly before we continue. Father, we ask that you would quiet our minds, clear our thoughts, give us the ability to stay awake, stay focused, and fixed on what your word teaches, that we might learn more about you and how we may live in light of that. For your glory we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. At this point in the story of the Israelites, in our history, if you will, they have seen all manner of supernatural events. The Bible is a book containing supernatural events. There's no way around it maybe not supernatural the way sometimes the world wants to define it. But at this point, we've seen in Exodus, the nation has flourished even within captivity. God has blessed and grown the nation of Israel numerically, even though they're in harm's way as far as their day-to-day lives. And yet, what do we see in the beginning of Exodus? We see the Israelites crying out to God, and then God remembering his covenant with him. Now, he never forgot. All in the fullness of time is the plan, are the plans and purposes of the Lord. Paul wrote to the Galatian church and said the exact thing that I just said. But it's intriguing that you know, we are hundreds of years removed from the end of the book of Genesis, and yet we have people crying out to God in their despair. We have something going on, God providentially preserving, in effect, His Word. He hadn't written it down. He had written it on the hearts of His people. You have to figure the, the way that God preserved His Word all the way from Genesis up until the Amen of Revelation could only have come from God. There is no other way by which we would understand how we are to live in light of who God is unless He is the one that did the preservation. And so he gives his people the reminders that he had made promises to their fathers, to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And they cry out to that God. And what does that God do? He doesn't leave them in the lurch. He remembers his covenant. He looks after his people. Now, just parenthetically, that should remind us and tell us that there may be times as God's people where we do go through affliction, but God has never abandoned us. We shouldn't scoff at the the chastening and the discipline that God provides for us, because as our covenant God, as Jehovah, He's the one who knows what's best for us far better than we could possibly come up with for ourselves. So it's entirely possible to have to go through a period of affliction and at the same time remain faithful to the God who's ordained that affliction. It's mind-boggling to the natural man. It's, it's foolishness to those who are perishing because they don't receive spiritual things. They can't. And before we get prideful about that, remember what God's Word tells us if it wasn't for God intervening in our lives, removing that heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, we would all be in that predicament. Because Paul told the Ephesians what the entire Bible speaks to, we are dead in our sins and trespasses, unable to affect any change in our lives, to bring us anywhere closer to God than being dead corpses. Well, that's a redundancy. To being corpses on the ground. But it's God who remembers His covenant, who remembers who He is and remembers His people and the plans and the purposes that He has for them. And He intervenes. He doesn't necessarily do it the way that the Israelites, or even us, when we ask God to intervene, He doesn't necessarily do it the way we would want. And it's probably better for us that way. And he goes about it by, uh, I would say by hook or by crook, but that sounds intemperate to, do, to speak to, to in that language regarding the Lord. He goes about it in ways that we would have never chosen for ourselves. The potential genocide, uh, the slaughter of the unborn, and yet the provision of what? An ark, a basket for little baby Moses. God not being without a sense of humor, provides providentially Moses' own mother to take care of Moses as Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses floating in that ark. God protects and preserves His people, but He doesn't do it the way they necessarily want it done. Hold on to that nugget for later, because we're going to discuss that in light of New Testament reality. So Moses grows up amongst the enemies I mean, functionally speaking goes to the wilderness after killing someone trying to intervene uh, in the affairs of the Israelite slaves, a period of wilderness wandering, and God intervenes in Moses' life. And we have the, the Burning Bush narrative. I'm loath to call them stories. Because that language these days means the stories just you know don't happen. I'm telling you a story if I sit and talk about some, some story about a, a penguin that, that is a detective or something. And I don't want to equate God's word with some fictionalized account of some fanciful set of circumstances. It's the burning bush narrative. This happened. And he speaks to Moses, and Moses is like, Whoa, 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 I can't even talk. You want me to leave these people? What am I supposed to do? God is going to provide the way out. You've got Aaron. You've got the staff. You go speak to the people, and you tell them I am sent you. So he's rubber stamping Moses. And if you're going to have the rubber stamp of anyone, the creator of all things, the king of kings and the lord of lords, probably the best rubber stamp and validation to have. And so, and I'm glossing over so much of the first 19 chapters of Exodus, I would encourage you to dig back into that to see just how detailed God's provision actually is. Because no matter what preacher standing in front of you, we're going to fall short of what God's word actually says, in summary. God intervenes, protects through drastic ways. We see the plagues, we see ultimately the Passover. The blood of the Lamb is the sign that the angel of death would pass over. And then we see the Exodus account itself. That's no small thing, parting the Red Sea, so that God's people could walk through on dry land away from their enemies, and God closing that sea, crushing the Israelites' enemies, when there's no way that they could have done it for themselves. So we've seen where the Israelites, imagine ourselves back at Sinai, the beginning of Exodus chapter 20. We, haven't, we don't have an a, a absent landlord, so to speak. We have a God that has intervened directly in our lives, has provided for us miraculously and supernaturally. Maybe we haven't really handled it real well along the way, but we see in Exodus chapter 20 what God says to his people. So I'm going to draw you back to the text. In the first two verses. And God spake all these words. These are words from the mouth of God. They are not through a mediator. They are not through a spokesperson. God does not need a spokesperson to spin the things that he says. The mediator of the covenant through here is is Moses. The mediator of the new covenant is Jesus. They are not the spin doctors for the Most High God, but for now God is actually speaking to his people directly. And he says this, I am the Lord thy God, so he's addressing who he is, but also who the Israelites are. The Westminster Divines talk about things being learned from Scripture either directly, Or by what? By good and necessary consequence. We can deduce these things logically from the words that God has chosen to use in his word. And he says, I am the Lord, thy God. I am the Lord, but I am also, Israelites, your God. Now they were coming out, and you'll see this as we discuss the the Ten Commandments proper. They were coming out of a culture that had many gods, and none of them were their gods. Because when you recognize the entire scope of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, was written to this generation coming out of Egypt that didn't have the, the deepest history with their God. They needed to be reintroduced to Jehovah. Moses is writing to reintroduce God's people to him, functionally speaking. And God says, I am the Lord thy God. That's a big deal. Small little word. He's saying, Israelites, I am your God. Now what does that also mean? That they are his people. It's a two-way street there. So he's introducing himself. And he goes in further in verse 2 to talk about what he's done. He says, I'm the Lord thy God, I'm your God, you're my people, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. When God is reintroducing himself to his people, he tells them who he is, tells them what he's done. I have redeemed, I have brought you out of the place where you lived, which was darkness and wickedness and slavery and sin. So he's made the connection, I'm your God, you are my people. And he's also said, I have freed you from the shackles of your sin. You lived in bondage, you no longer lived in, live in bondage, and oh yeah, I'm the one responsible for it. Now, you would think at this point in Exodus, it would be obvious These folks have seen everything play out. We're not talking about two, three generations past that are just hearing the oral tradition of their people. what God did. They saw it. They lived it. And yet, God's still reminding them. It's good to have the reminder from time to time. It's why He's preserved His Word. That's why we don't just have a pamphlet that discusses the gospel means we have the whole of who God is and the scope of redemptive history. We've got into to amen. We've got Genesis to Revelation for this very purpose, to be reintroduced to who God is, to what He's done, and how He's done it. And so God has has rem- Israelites that He is the Redeemer. He's the Liberator. He's the Rescuer. He's the one that pulled them out of bondage when they couldn't do it for themselves. Now, us... As New Testament Christians, for us, when we hear that language, our ears should perk up a little bit. Because when you fast forward to the mediator of the new covenant, when you fast forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's as if He's standing in front of us in our lives saying the very thing that God has said in Exodus chapter 20. It is as if He is saying, Jesus, mind you, in His person and work, It is as if he is saying to us, I am the Lord thy God, which brought you out of spiritual Egypt, out of the bondage to your sin. And in fact, Jesus says similar words to this in the scope of his ministry. He says the thief would seek to kill, steal, and destroy. He says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. When he's talking to John the Baptist's disciples, he's saying what? Captives are being set free. The blind are seeing, the lame are being healed. When he says the captives are being set free, he's talking about fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. And so we have this connection, and it makes perfect sense. The Israelites did nothing to affect their salvation from the land of Egypt and the bondage, the physical bondage in which they lived in the same way that we have affected none of the elements of our salvation. We could not save ourselves from the the spiritual bondage that we are in as natural, unregenerate people. We need God's redemption. We need a God who saves, a God who rescues, and a God who redeems. And that is what we have always had. God's people have always had this God. The structure of the salvation may have looked different in the older, in the Old Covenant, to be sure. And that causes a lot of people to stumble. And they figure, well, the Old Testament folks were saved by slaughtering bulls and goats and not mixing fabrics and not eating shrimp and all this stuff. But these New Testament salvation, these people are saved by Jesus. No, that's, that's a distorted, truncated, wicked way of separating the Scriptures. Salvation has always been by faith as God graciously redeems his people. It's always been that way. Going back to the garden, what did Adam and Eve do when they ate the fruit? When Adam was a passive coward and he stood idly by as Eve ate the fruit and then handed it to him. They realized they were naked. They were ashamed. And they come up with, they cobbled together some makeshift fig leaf outfit. What does God do? as he's lovingly, graciously chastising them and removing them from the garden, he does a couple things that, that bear repeating. He tells them in Genesis 3.15, it's not always going to be as bad as it might seem to be right now. There's a promise I'm giving you. There's going to be enmity as he's cursing the serpent, enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the serpent's going to bruise the the seed of the woman's head, and the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's... No. Bruise the heel, crush the head. There we go. That's a small but gigantic distinction right there. Whew. So it wasn't always going to be as bad as it was, and it had to have seemed horrific. When God himself says, What have you done? Can you imagine the terror coursing through them? Now... We say terror, but we know what was coursing through them: blame shifting, not taking responsibility, not taking ownership, not doing the right thing, and repenting. So he does that. He says it's not going to always going to be that way. Going to send the seed of the woman. Now we know. Our divines tell us. Our, our theologians at Westminster tell us that everyone that proceeds into this world by ordinary generation has Adam sinned, the taint of original sin, implying what? That there's some sort of extraordinary generation. The God-man, Jesus. Born of a woman, conceived by the Holy Ghost. Extraordinary, to be sure. So he does that, but he also does what? He sheds blood and provides a covering for Adam and Eve with the skins of the animal. The covering that God gives us is always better than the covering that we can make for ourselves. And that's why we see in Scripture without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. We see that, I don't want to say theory, that principle applied all the way through the Scriptures. It wasn't the, bulls and the blood of bulls and goats itself that washed away sin. It was the faith of the people who followed the Lord who told them, this is how I will be worshipped. More on that to come. So he tells us in the first two verses who he is, who we are, and what he's done. And then he unfolds what else we need to know. Remember that the Shorter Catechism tells us that the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. What's true, what to do. The fancy words, indicatives and imperatives. Those are the words that theologians use. You need to know it's it's what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Well, that's what we have here in Exodus 20. What is man to believe concerning God? He's the Lord, his God, and he's the Redeemer. He's the Liberator. Now, what should we do in light of that? Well, now you have the Decalogue. You have the ten words. You're not to to use how we summarized it from Jesus' own mouth earlier. You're to love God and to love your neighbor. And he lays out specifically how that's supposed to look. We're not supposed to worship any other gods. We're supposed to worship God the way he establishes. establishes. We're not supposed to come up with images on our own. Because nobody's seen God. We don't know. There's no discussion of that. If he wanted us to make images, he would give us a description of the image we're supposed to make. We're supposed to be reverent with regards to his his name and our speech, and we're supposed to worship and rest in the pattern consistent with what he established prior to giving the law. Because the Sabbath principle is not initially introduced here It's initially introduced where? In Genesis, in creation. Six days, Moses reminds the people. Six days, God labored, rested on the seventh. Six days, you will labor, and you will rest on the seventh. The pattern predates Sinai. It goes back to the garden. And that's what we need to remember. Because our worship and rest cycle needs to reflect biblically, what God's worship and rest cycle is. We don't get to pick and choose. We go off of what's in the Word. So that's the, what's commonly called the first table of the law, is what we are to do in light of who God is with regards to how we relate to Him. So we're not going to go through each of the Ten Commandments and, and have ten mini-sermons moshed together and crammed together because we'd be here for hours and we, y'all would throw the chairs at me. And I would have to let you, because that would be exhausting. But we can recognize, while not going into too much detail, recognize what we are to, to to know about these two tables of the law. That the first is how we interact with the Lord in light of the fact that He's redeemed us. And as the liberator, certainly as our creator, Paul would say, Look, the potter can tell you know can do with the clay what he sees fit. But even more so as our liberator. This is how he would have us live in light of what he's done for us. It's completely reasonable to us as regenerated human beings. Now, if anyone has any recollection of their life prior to Christ, or if anyone has, has seen uh, liberal Protestant theologians or skeptics or just flat-out uh, folks that deny the the sufficiency of Scripture and its inspiration, they will say, well, the Ten Commandments are the rules that Christians have to to follow in order to be made acceptable to God. So that God will say, you did it, you've earned your way in, because remember, God helps those that help help themselves. That's something you'll never find in the Scriptures. Ever. That's, That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. But... When we read all of Exodus 20 and pay particular attention to verses 1 and 2, well, now we're seeing verses 3 through 17 completely differently. When we recognize what God has done, who He is for us, who we are to Him, and what He's done for us, we see these verses as a way to express our gratitude, not as as an obligation. To be made right in the sight of God. Because there's no way possible we could be made right in the sight of God by doing these things. Because the very second that we tell ourselves that we can do these things, we have. And if we break one law, James tells us later in the scripture, it's as though we broke all of the laws. So we see verses 3 through 17, in light of verses 1 and 2, the preface to the Ten Commandments is crucial for us as God's people to be reminded who He is, to be reminded who we are, and to recognize that we are free now to live with a sense of gratitude towards the One who set us free, and here's how we express our gratitude. You love Him with all you've got. You love your neighbor just like you love yourself. And I realize that's a short summation, but... 3 through 17 gives us detail. You're reverent towards the Lord. You worship when He tells you to. You rest when He tells you to. And we see other portions of Scripture that illuminate these things and elaborate on them. But we've seen them experientially in our lives. We don't have to rest on the Lord's day. We get to rest on the Lord's day. We are commanded by God to stop in a culture that wants us to grind ourselves into powder 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year, the God of the universe is telling us, stop for a day out of seven and focus on the one who set you free. It's a privilege to be able to rest on the Lord's Day to not do schoolwork, to not go shopping, to not have to come up with a a list of things and and wade into the, the commerce of the world. It's a blessing to be able to take a breath and get caught up on your Bible reading and worship with the Lord's people and have a meal with godly folks that you don't get to see a lot of. How many times have we put that, the fourth commandment in particular, we put that to the test functionally speaking. Maybe we're not rebellious about it, But at the end of the Lord's Day, after we've spent time with God's people, you you think to yourself, you know what, I was exhausted coming into this, but I feel great. I'm glad that I was with, and then fill in the blank, whatever family from church. I can tell you from my own personal experience as a minister, back in Knoxville, Tennessee, had the privilege. Actually, it started out, there was an elder that was hounding me to, to go minister with him in nursing homes and retirement communities. And I was the youth and family director there and, you know, young family and trying to get a lot of things going. And, man, would you just stop hounding me? Fine, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. And admittedly, I was hesitant. I guess that's the understatement. But I went and I prayed with those brothers and sisters. And I sang with them. And I had a 10-minute little message because sometimes that's all you you can do. And a funny thing happened when I, quote, put God to the test. I walked into that building exhausted and worn down. And I left that building with a pep in my step and a smile on my face. And it fueled me to do the next thing, whatever the next thing was, whether it was Sunday night stuff with the youth in the church or going home to be with my family. That's what God does for his people on his day when we submit to his will out of gratitude and not seeing it as a burden or an obligation. Gratitude for the fact that he liberated us from commercialism and hedonism and self-centeredness. He sets us free. We get to do these things in the Ten Commandments. Equip us to do it. But it's not only a What's that? Vertical. It's not only a vertical relationship. It's the horizontal relationship between believers, and that's what I was alluding to earlier. As we as we spend time with God's people, we treat them right. We don't kill them with our thoughts or with our words, or heaven forbid, with our hands. We don't cheat. We don't violate the covenant terms of our relationships if we're married. And if we're not married, we don't act like we're married with people that aren't our spouses. We treat people the way we want to be treated, but the way God would have us treat them. We don't look at the stuff they have and want it and hate them for having it because we don't get it. God has freed us from chasing after other people's stuff or anybody, any kind of stuff. When we recognize that He's the one that set us free, We live completely differently. At least we should. Sometimes we stumble into the old ways. We get caught up. Everybody gets caught slipping from time to time. But God has an avenue for us with regards to that. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we see God's word. We see God's law laid out before us. They aren't millstones dragging us down under water, and they aren't an albatross hanging around our neck. Shackles around our wrists and waistbands and ankles. The psalmist would say that it's the law of God that converts our soul. It changes us. God is saying, this is who I am. This is what I've done for you. Here is how you live." And when you live consistently with what I say, it will refresh your soul. But the trick, the hook, if you will, is there's no possible way you can do it on your own. We have to come to the cross and die and just lay it all out. We can't put ourselves first, we have to be last. We can't be served, we have to serve. There's a humility. The broken and contrite heart we hear David discuss in Psalm 51, that's what we have to have. But left on our own, we're not going to have it. And that's what verse 2 reminds us. It's God that removes the shackles. It's God that gets us out of bondage and then equips us with how to live. Because remember, the Israelites have one clue how to live as God's people. They're too busy making bricks or plundering the Egyptians on the way out after the Passover. They had no idea. God had to tell them, here is what my covenant people should should do and should be in their lives. My covenant people, God says, should love me with all their heart and love their neighbor just like they love themselves. And here are some ways that that's going to work out. Now, as chapter 20 progresses we see or we are reminded that this isn't Moses saying thus saith the lord to the israelites we're reminded cuz we get caught up in the heaviness of the 10 commandments that takes up a lot of our mental energy sometimes when we look at the posters of the 10 commandments good things we don't have verses 1 and 2 and we also almost imagine Moses standing there reading we don't we forget that it's actually god himself speaking to his people and there are consequences and realities that we don't really see unless we read the whole chapter. And so, verse 18 says, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings, and the noise of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. So, you get this image of this. I mean, you can't even do it justice because there's no way I can give you an illustration that comes anywhere close to the God of the universe speaking directly to His people. But whatever it was, we see it... ...in some sort of event, and it was enough to make people do what? I'll, I'll back away a little bit, and now we, then we hear what they say in verse 19. Speak thou with us, Moses, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. I think there are a lot of times that we have too small an understanding of who God is, and that causes us to play fast and loose with his commands for us in his word. When God speaks directly to his people in Scripture, it's terrifying. We see it right here in verse 19. Moses, we'll listen to you. You're one of us. You'll tell us what he says. But there's something other completely other about Jehovah speaking to His people. That is terrifying. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, we see a fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. So an exceptionally intelligent thing that the Israelites just did. Recognizing that God is holy, by that I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy and completely other, something other than humanity. And that otherness is what we see going on when he directly speaks to his people. And it causes us, it should cause us to tremble before his presence. I think a lot of times we have, maybe we've bought into the spirit of the age with regards to how people present Jesus to the outside world. Like he's got the 70s rock supergroup lead singer hair, and he's just this aw shucks approachable guy and he's you could just be buddy buddy with Jesus. Jesus is God and God is something different than us. Yes, he's fully God, he's fully man as well. But there's something about divinity that we don't grasp if we fixate too much on the person of Jesus and forget that he's also fully God as well. And that fully godness, if you will, manifests itself in Exodus chapter 20 as something that terrifies people when we recognize that God is distinct and separate from who we are, it should give us pause to play fast and loose with His name, with images, with His worship, with how He commands us to to live our lives. We ought to to pause for a minute and do the kind of self-examination that Paul talks about with regards to the Lord's Supper in other non Lord's Supper ways. Am I truly reverencing God the way He would have me reverence Him? Am I too casual? And that can be humbling. It can also be terrifying. And thank Him for giving us a mediator. Just like He did for the Israelites. He gave the Israelites Moses. Moses is the mediator of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament era. He's called the lawgiver. Ultimately, it's the Lord that gives us His law, and we recognize that. But he is the mediator. And we see in Hebrews Christ being referred to as the mediator of the new covenant. So we see that mediator standing in the gap between a holy God and a sinful people. Many of us may have seen that illustration, the bridge illustration that the navigators group used, where there's God on one side, man on the other, and Christ bridging that gap. Well, Moses is a type of Christ in that he's pointing ultimately to the archetype that's fulfilled perfectly in Christ. He's the one in Exodus 20, verse 19, that's standing in the gap between a holy God and his people. So what does Moses reply? Is Moses like them? I don't want to be anywhere closer to them than, than him than you do. No, that's not it at all. What does he say? Fear not. So whatever this, this feeling was that the Israelites have, Moses is already acting as the mediator. And he says, fear not, for God has come to prove you, to test you, to try you, to refine you, if you will. And that his fear may, may be before your faces. To what end? Is it fear for fear's sake? Does Is God some whimsical just tyrant that wants to put... The fear of Him into the lives of all his pe- and the eyes and minds and lives of all His people No. Moses tells the people why God is handling things the way He's handling them. Look at, look at verse 20. He said, "God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, so you can see just who God is to what end, that ye sin not. The goal for his people, that He Himself set free, is that they would be holy like what? Like He is holy. Because these ten words, these ten commandments, reflect who God is. God is truth. God is faithfulness. God is rightness, justice, everything. He's perfect in in what? We know what the catechism teaches. He's perfect in in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He's all of those things. And the people stood back. But what does Moses do as the as the mediator? He goes the opposite way. The people are standing back. Moses goes forward to talk to the Lord. And in 22, we see God and Moses having a conversation. The Lord says, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, You've seen that I've talked with you from heaven. You shall shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall you make unto you gods of gold. So what he's reminding Moses is, look, tell the people, you've heard what I said. Don't try to play fast and loose with worship and with these idols. You don't need to be doing. Now, it's interesting that that's the go-to that the Lord has for his people. Stop making idols. Now, why might they have needed to be reminded? From where did they come? They came from a polytheistic culture where there were numerous gods and numerous idols, and none of them were what? None of them were Jehovah. None of them were their gods. He's saying, listen, You came out of a situation where there were bunches of gods. None of them are me. Stop the idea. Get it out of your head that you can make an idol that looks like me. Don't do it. We need to be reminded similarly. You hear people say, well, my God wouldn't. Yeah, your God would. Normally people do that when they want to refute what the God actually says in his word. Well, my God would never is, well, yeah, because your God doesn't exist outside of your own making. And left on our own, we would create all sorts of gods of our own making, because that's what natural people do. So we all do until God converts us. We need to be taught how to worship rightly. The only way that we can be taught how to worship rightly is if we go to the source, and he's given us, he showed us in his word how to worship. What does he need to make fancy gods of silver and gods of gold? No. Look at the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 24. Let's go to the text. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. What do we know about earth? Is it fancy? I mean, maybe, maybe potting soil is fancy earth. Maybe it's fancy dirt diatomaceous earth or whatever maybe that's fancy, but is that what god's talking about no you're going to make an altar of earth something simple something indistinct it's not the altar it's not the package of the worship that matters it's obedience to the one who tells you how to worship that matters that's the way it's always been. We talk about the regulative principle in worship, of worship in our circles as though it's a novel doctrine. Some people want to say, "Well, it just popped up. The 17th century Scots came up with it." No, God came up with it. Don't make fancy worship. Don't make fancy altars. Don't make fancy idols. Simple altar of earth. That's all you need, cuz I'm telling you that's all you need. Not because the earth has any magical powers. We're not pagan. God's not pagan. What does he say in verse 25? And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. Okay, so we just need a an altar, or a, a rock big enough to be an altar to do all the offerings and stuff. That's fine. Hey, wait a minute. I've got one, you know, But it's really big. Maybe I ought to make it smaller. We can cut it in half and have two altars. Maybe we could do that. God says, no, don't do that. And let me tell you why. Let's go back to verse 25. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Okay. So there's something different about how God wants his worship to progress. Simple. Simple the way he prescribes it, and we don't have to mess around with it trying to add something fancy to gussy it up, as some of my family would say back in the day, to gussy it up, to make it fancier, to make it uh, more appealing. No. What is God saying in his word? I'm going to tell you how to do this. Don't deviate from what I've told you, because when you start going down that road, you're already messing it up. Stick to the book, You'll be fine. I mean, that's the gist. If I can use gist when it comes to God's word and worship, that's what God is saying. Follow my instruction when it comes to how to approach me. last verse here. Neither shalt thou go up thy steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness might not come into view, might not be discovered thereon. Don't go approaching me casually. Don't go making images to fancy up my worship. Don't go tooling around with what I've commanded. Stick to the instructions is what God says. And boy, if you want want to Google worship wars in Christianity, you will have a litany of results and arguments all over the map. But when we recognize the totality of Exodus chapter 20, that it's God who is our God, who, and we're his people, and he's redeemed us, and he's taught us how to live, and he's taught us how to worship. Why do we ever want to try to mess around with that? If he's redeemed us from bondage, he's told us what he's redeemed us from, so why do we want to go back to slavery, to something, slavery to sin? So let's look at how the New Testament reality applies here. The person and work of Christ sets the sh- takes the shackles off, sets the captives free. We now have abundant life, new life in Christ. We are free. The Holy Spirit now lives within us to will and to work His pleasure in our lives. We can now glorify Him and enjoy Him forever as the Spirit applies His Word into our lives and makes us more like Christ and less like Adam. Why would we want to mess with that formula of God being the one who sets us free, who began the good work in us, who will see it through to completion? Why do we think in our hubris that we can mess around with the middle part and make it any better than the Lord Himself has made it for us? But that's the challenge, and that's the struggle. A lot of times, people will say, well, if we stick to the book, nobody will show up. You're not really given the best uh, witness for the Lord under those circumstances, because it is God that has established what right worship is, and if His people follow His Word, like has been said many times, attributed to many people, Duty is ours. Consequences are the Lord's. We are to be faithful, not to earn His favor, because, but because He has already given us His favor. He's already given us new life in Christ. We desperately needed to be born again because we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and God, who was merciful to us, sent Christ to the cross in our stead so that we might have eternal life and have it abundantly. Fellowship with him and his people forever. Oh, but my fancy image that I created out of, out of metal and dipped in gold is somehow going to make that better. No, God says don't even do that. Because the mindset behind that is not total trust in, in the God who saves and redeems. The, God, the person that wants to add to God's word is the one who doesn't trust God's Word at all. And if you don't trust God's Word in print, what does that say about your trust for the Word in made flesh? So the takeaway needs to be, how are we living in light of what God has done for us? That can be a terrifying thought on the front and in the, as you begin the process. But remember that God has already told us who He is. He's our God, and we're His people, and He's never going to leave us or forsake us. And the God who redeems us in Christ is going to see all of that through to completion. So as we struggle, and as we engage in self-examination, and as we see, wait a second, I'm slipping here, and I, I thought this was true, but it's not, and i you know, I got to figure this thing out. And Lord, I'm sorry. That's the attitude that God wants His people to have toward Him, to recognize as He sanctifies us by His Spirit and His Word and the ordinary means of grace in our lives, the Word, sacraments, and prayer. As He does all those things, He wants His people to come to Him more and say, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. The sins have already been paid for on the cross. You're not doing anything, and I'm not doing anything by asking the Lord to forgive me that Christ didn't take care of at Calvary. But the bottom line is he wants us to come to him so that he can remind us who we are we're his people and the sheep of his pasture so let's go to him in prayer father we are grateful that you did not leave us in our sins and trespasses you have not left us in spiritual death you've made us alive in christ You were merciful where we deserve no mercy, and we're thankful for that. Father, help us to live lives following your word, not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. Jesus told us that if we loved him, we would keep his commandments. And, Father, so many times we lose sight of that, that we definitely love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we reflect that back to you as we faithfully follow your word. Father, forgive us when we fall short of that. Remind us that those sins have been paid for. And remind us that in Christ there is no condemnation for us. We ask all these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.